Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our author events at www.skylightbooks.com. At our website, you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. And don't be afraid to follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Um, but right now, you're here to see uh, Tony O'Neill. His new book is Sick City. It's been said by someone once that Tony writes about the Hollywood I know as well as any writer alive, and his characters are a punch in the face. Uh, that someone was the awesome author, playwright, and poet, Dan Fonte. And so that sounds like a pretty good person to introduce him than myself. So um, again, thank you very much for coming, and here is Dan Fonte. Got all my equipment here. Hear me okay? Yes. Great. What a pleasure to be here with my friend Tony. It's just, uh, Tony's got a new book out and he's going to read from it. And uh, I, uh, uh, my last book uh, is that book there. Uh, 86, which came out last year, and uh, uh, just completing uh, the edits on a book called Fonte, a memoir about my father and myself, uh, and that should be out um, this time next year. And um, Tony asked me, uh, I live in Arizona now, but Tony asked me, he said he was going to be in town, and I checked my schedule, and we're spending some time at the beach here in Santa Monica, and uh, the time timing worked out, so we're doing it together. So I'm very, I'm delighted. And uh, so I'm going to read uh, from 86th, uh, and um, 86th, as I said, came out um, October, November last year, and um, it's the actually the the fifth Bruno Dante book. I write about this character, and uh, I'll just set it up for you. Um, uh, Bruno is out of work, and he's got a little problem with substance abuse, and a little problem with his personality and uh, and so he's had an argument with his boss and he is fired and he looks in the newspaper and there's an ad he looks all through the newspaper because he doesn't want to go back into telemarketing and there's an ad running for a limousine company and he notices that the name of the person in the ad is a boss he worked for uh, as a chauffeur and as a dispatcher in New York City several years before. So he calls this guy up, the guy's name is David Kaufman, and Kaufman um, invites him to have an interview, a job interview, and um, with the intention of possibly hiring him as a chauffeur or as a manager of a limousine company. And um, so what I'm going to read for you is a scene uh, of the job interview between uh, Bruno Dante and David Kaufman. I arrived uh, early, I arrived at the restaurant early and headed for the men's room. Once inside, with the door locked, I set the manila envelope containing my fictitious job resume down under the paper towel rack, then finished off one of the two half-pint bracers I picked up on the way, tossing the empty in the trash. Then I took a minute to focus on the face in the mirror. I looked okay. Eyes clear, good close shave. I'd been sweating through my shirt as usual and my tie had a stain, snot or food or something, but it wasn't that noticeable. I smoothed my hair down with my fingers and that was that. To quiz myself on my bogus work history, I unclamped the envelope and took a last look at the resume. If Kaufman required a document that showed management in addition to straight chauffeuring, no problem, I was ready, I had one. It was 10.30 and after brec the bre breakfast rush at the Formosa Cafe and 
The Formosa Cafe wasn't busy, so I was able to find a booth with a window. The owner of Dave Co. Hollywood made his appearance as I was finishing my second cup of coffee. I watched as his hired by the hour chauffeured blue stretch Lincoln pulled up in front of the restaurant blocking the Santa Monica Boulevard crosswalk. Before entering, David Kaufman, all six foot seven inches and 300 pounds of him, now with shoulder length gray hair, stood outside the restaurant's glass door. A spring fashion statement in his Tom Wolfe open-collared, white-on-white linen suit. Posing there, half man, half tent, he chatted amiably with the driver long enough to make sure everyone inside the place had a good opportunity to check him out. He shook my hand, flashed me his million peso grin, then flopped his long body into the booth. He looked older. The nightlife and years with the booze had taken their toll. Is that for me? He said, pointing at the brown envelope on the table. I nodded and pushed it toward him. I couldn't help but notice that this guy and his Buffalo Bill Act were ideally suited to a city composed mainly of status junkies and now you see it, now you don't, flim-flam insincerity. After ordering eggs and green tea and taking a quick cell phone call, Kaufman gave my resume a 10-second once-over then looked up. So, he said, you drove a yellow cab here in Los Angeles for over a year, correct? Yeah, correct, I said. Long hours, lousy pay. Then I, want, then I went on. There's a limo job there, too, underneath the taxi job. Right, okay, here it is. A private party chauffeur position. Prime time. You drove for an ex-CEO. This, of course, was a lie. From here on down, everything I had written on the resume was an exaggeration or outright bullshit. For me, it, was all, it had always been easier to make stuff up than to remember the sequence of an unimportant or ridiculous job or its dates in history. A retired guy, I said. He traveled with a large, stinky 15-year-old Irish setter. The dog had a bladder problem and the guy never bathed him. He died. I mean, the guy died. Probably the dog, too. Anyway, I'm not a big Irish setter fan. Kaufman seemed amused. The important thing is that you know the L.A. streets. Hey, I know the streets. No problem. Okay, okay, here we go. You managed a staff of three to five at Kasim's Worldwide Precious Metals and Rare Coin Consortium in, in Manhattan Beach. Right, correct. Long name. What sort of consortium? It wasn't a consortium at all. Consortium at all. This is L.A. I guess the guy needed a flash title for his telemarketing boiler room. Reason for leaving? Reorganization, I'd guess you'd call it. Reorganization, haha, you mean the place went tits up. Suddenly I had an overwhelming need for a drink. For the last 30 seconds I've been controlling the onset of leg tremors by tightly crossing the fuckers at my ankles. Even now the heebie-jeebies appeared to be traveling their way up my torso into my body. Maybe I was about to get a sudden spell of the flyaways because my left hand had just begun to shake, my coffee cup hand. I slid it under the table and pinned the prick beneath my thigh. Right, I said, bad management. I see, said Kaufman, whose hands never seemed to shake at all. Now I was dizzy. My throat was dry and I needed air. My heart began slamming itself against the inside of my rib cage. The guy in the polar bear uniform leaned closer. Are you okay, Bruno? You seem to be trembling. My mouth formed words, but the lips refused the marching orders. I had to settle for wagging my head up and down. My full attention was fixed on the glove compartment of my Pontiac parked at the meter 50 feet away where I'd left my backup half pint of vodka. I was now acutely aware that I'd be unable to, to endure another four seconds of this moron interview. I needed any excuse to get up and leave the booth. Bruno, what's up? What's going on? Are you, are you hung over? Unlike me, David Kaufman was an excessive periodic drinker and not a day-to-day -day juice head. There was no way he could not get 
what was wrong, what was going on with me. I thrust a trembling thumb down on top of the resume and finally was finally able to blurt some words. Bottom, bottom line, I said, the company was a total Chinese fire drill. If you want to know, the guy, the owner, was a foreigner. He spoke about five words of American. He wouldn't know a, a, a cold call from the goddamn La Brea tar pits. I see, said David. I understand. Swell. Can we move on? Okay, but just below that, on your job description, you write, you ran a staff of three to five people. I'm confused. Was it three or was it five? Or what? Sweat was now soaking my hair, forehead, and armpits. For some reason, beyond my control, my voice was getting steadily louder. I pointed down at the page. Confused, I was the supervisor, I barked. I managed trainee. Some weeks there were three, and some weeks there were more than three. Sometimes five, sometimes more, sometimes two, sometimes one, sometimes seven. Okay, for Christ's sake? Okay, Bruno, fabulous. And, did, uh, and you did the supervisor job for how long? It's right there in front of you, typed out in bold 12-point courier font. Yes, yes, I see. Two years. And what products did you sell? Rare fucking coins. Valuable rare coins. Bruno, why are you so nervous? You're mistaken, David. You've misconstrued my enthusiasm as a sign of tension. I get warm sometimes. Sometimes I sweat. What's the big fucking deal? Kaufman took a sip of tea. May I suggest that we keep our voices down? We seem to be attracting attention. Sure, no problem. Fine with me. Fabulous. Okay, let's move on. Tell me about the precious metals aspect of the company. I sucked in air. I could feel my face reddening and I was beginning to onset, to experience the onset of two simultaneous physical sensations. A, I was going to pass out, or B, I was going to shit in my pants. There's just, that's just more hyperbole, prevarication and bullshit, I snarled, like calling the company a consortium. We didn't sell precious metals at all, no such thing. We sold coins, you know, uncirculated old silver dollars and buffalo nickels and shit, Krugerrand, stuff like that. Setting my resume on the table, Kaufman folded his arms. What's really bothering you, Bruno? Is it a hangover or what? Just tell me what's going on. It became apparent to me that I needed to murder this huge tea-slurping faggot. Leaning across the table, I was an inch from his face. Okay, here, look, here's the deal, I blurted. My Pontiac is parked at a meter down the street, okay? The meter is about to expire. I've been here over an hour, okay? This is Hollywood, okay? Expired parking tickets here are 49 fucking dollars, and I'm about to get one, okay? And additionally, I think I'm coming down with something. It's, a, it's not a hangover. Possibly it's the flu. Kaufman rolled his eyes. We're almost done, Bruno. Can't you just calm down? I'll pay the ticket. Your car will be fine. We were just discussing your last job. I know what we were discussing, David. I'm not a moron imbecile. Will you be straight with me, Bruno, about something? Have you been drinking this morning? Be completely candid, please. Here's what I'm saying. Okay, I whisper yelled. I'm saying that the owner of the company, the main guy, the prick that ran the coin joint, was a Middle Eastern anal retentive Taliban fuck. I lied, okay? They didn't reorganize the company, I quit. I quit because I became aware that they were recording all the phone calls. Believe that shit? Recording every goddamn phone call we make. Kaufman inclined his lanky body away from me, pressing his back against the red naugahyde. He looked scared. So, you're saying that you left the position voluntarily, Bruno? Yeah, I did. I quit. Know what I'm saying? Okay, fine. But as far as I know, there's really nothing illegal about a company recording phone calls. 
hey, this is the United States of America, if I'm not mistaken, okay? We have laws relating to espionage and wiretapping here. This particular rectum shit breath jerk off I'm referring to as a vindictive Persian prick, a pernicious Taliban un-American alien pompous cocksucking dwarf, and the son of a bitch beat me out of my final paycheck, okay? 511 bucks, okay? If that's not the definition of a card-carrying cocksucker, I don't know what the hell is. I see that we're not on the same page here, Bruno. The page you're on is the page I'm on. 10,000 fucking percent, I promise you. So, Bruno, is it your car or the flu or are you upset about, lose about your last boss? Okay, look, David, I'm sorry about the cocksucker remark, okay? I apologize. It was uncalled for and off the cuff, completely out of context and inappropriate to our discussion. I'll just say this. In my book, a cocksucker can be a male or a female anatomically. Cocksuckers are, let's say, potentially interchangeable. That doesn't make them right or wrong. I think we can both agree on the definition of the word cocksucker is kind of neutral, okay? I mean, you may, you may or may not be a cocksucker. That's none of my concern. It's a private matter between you and your conscience and any other consenting adult whose cock you might be sucking. Why I'm, what I'm saying is that it doesn't necessarily follow that all home must ipso facto be cocksuckers. Perhaps they are, but who said we should throw the baby out with the bathwater? On the table by the menus and the sugar shaker, Kaufman's cell phone began to chime to the tune of dancing in the dark. Go ahead, I said, still battling dizziness, gulping in as much air as possible, pointing at the chrome-colored chiming turn on the table. Answer your goddamn phone. I'll put some quarters in my meter. Big David was staring at me, ignoring his phone. He sighed deeply, then extending his thick arms, a benign expression infecting his face. He covered my hands with his massive paws in a misguided, dumbfuck, homosexual attempt to soothe me. I can see that you're upset, Bruno, he whispered. It's okay. Now I was impaled, pinned to the formica by Hulk Hogan in a milkman's uniform. Okay, Jesus, I howled. I howled. Yes, I am. I'm upset. I admit it. Please listen carefully, Bruno. Just try to let in what I'm saying. I'm offering you an excellent opportunity, a live-in chauffeur-manager position. Are you interested? Jesus, of course I'm fucking interested. I want the job. Oh, good. A minute or two later, as I was sliding across the booth fake leather bench seat to get to my feet, somehow the trembling butt of my coffee hand came down on the rim of the cup. Its contents were launched across the table and landed on the sleeve of David Kaufman's white jacket. It didn't help seal the deal. It just happened. Thank you. Thank you. Now I'll read you one poem and then I'm done. If I can find it. Yeah. This is from a gin-pissing raw meat dual carburetor V8 son of a bitch from Los Angeles, which is my only hardback book. And I don't title my poems, so I'll just, uh, this is called uh, The Mean Cat. I met the meanest bastard starving cat while sitting with a book on a bench smoking half a pack of Luckies at Venice Beach. He saw me and came up, white filthy with one green eye and one yellow eye and a fresh slash on his scarred ear. Angry as a wounded wolf, he kept his distance and his look said, feed me or fuck off, that bench you're on is my territory. What he didn't know is that I know desperate too and crazy and what emptiness and aloneness and rage can do to you when you've got nothing but pain in your pockets and your home is a busted out 1978 Pontiac stalled in an alley in West LA and the voices in your mind are carving more of you up and killing more of you off each day and you wake up and drink more rat piss wine to keep you from instant madness and God becomes a guy coming out of the 7-Eleven handing you chump change for another fucking jug and fear is your finest feeling and love is dead and all time is dead and even your eyes stink and your gut is bloated with the screaming voices of those you hate and the only real sanity there is can be found in the small miracle of sucking back one more drink. 
that mean white cat didn't know I'd been cut too from the same cloth. The only difference between us is 20 years and my typewriter. Thank you. Hey, hello everybody. Thank you for coming down, and thanks Dan for uh, for for reading with me. That was that was um, Dan's one of my favorite writers of all time. He's a big big inspiration to me. Um, so yeah, I'm reading from Six City, my new book. It's uh, the first book I wrote that's uh, completely fictional and uh, not based upon my own scandal, but rather imagined scandal by imagined characters. Um, I'll give you a basic cliff note to the book. It's about two guys. One guy called Randall P. Ernest, who was the son of a famous Hollywood family, and another guy called Jeffrey, who's an ex-male prostitute, and they both meet in rehab. And Jeffrey has a... Uh, in his possession, uh, a copy of a legendary sex tape starring Sharon Tate, Yul Brynner, Steve McQueen, and Mama Cass in a Mama Cass in like a, a, dr a drug-fueled sex orgy filmed at Roman Polanski's house in the late 60s. Um, so they plot to sell the tape on the black market using uh, Randall's movie connections and Jeffrey's tapes so they can split LA with the profits. Um, and a, and a lot of odd things happen. Uh, the chapter I'm going to read you is uh, when Randall and Jeffrey are trying to uh, cut somebody out of a deal and sell the tape to a guy called Spider who's got a shady past in gay pornography. And this scene actually takes place at a bar uh, that's not too far from here called the Spotlight Room on Coanga, which if you guys are from, uh, from LA, you may have drank there at some point. So uh, yeah, this is, this is where we're at with the book at this point. It was early evening in the spotlight room. At this time of the night, there was an uneasy truce between the transvestites, the male prostitutes, and the speed freaks. Depending on what time of day you set foot in the spotlight, one of these three social groups would dominate the bar. But at 8 p.m., with the final rays of sunlight still creeping around the sticky black PVC curtain that hung in front of the door, and before the evening crowd had yet gotten good and drunk, no one particular group had dominance. A couple of lonely-looking men with five o'clock shadows and makeup melting off of their faces sat close to the jukebox, sadly miming along to Sammy Davis Jr. singing, I Gotta Be Me. Their faces told silent tales of lives gone horribly wrong, of worlds that had long since imploded. By the bar, an alcoholic with a long ago broken nose that had healed up in such a way that it looked like a smushed piece of Play-Doh was trying to convince a female barfly that he had connections in the movie industry. It was the oldest hustle in the book, and they both knew it. But they carried on the dance anyway, the gestures and lines worn smooth over the years with repetition. Oh, you could totally be in the movies, he was saying to her, edging ever closer. He'd been up all night already, and his earlier boyfriends were long gone. All he had going for him was a dog called Fuckface that was sleeping in the trunk of his car, and three months unpaid rent in the roach-infested hole he lived in. And the object of his attention has looked to be in her late forties, and brightly colored patches of makeup gave her the look of a freshly battered wife. Well, I do got legs, she was saying, stretching one of them out and looking at the calf admiringly. My second husband was from the Dominican Republic. He used to go crazy for my legs. He was shot and killed three years ago. Oh, they're great legs, the man said. Who shot your husband? I was a guy who worked at the 7-Eleven he was robbing. I heard the guy was a Buddhist or a Hindu, one of those fucking crazy things, the ones who worship cows and shit. Hey, I thought those bastards were all pacifists, but he sure as hell wasn't a pacifist when he blew away poor Enrique. God damn his soul. Oh, that's a tough break. You got your SAG card? I know a guy can get you one if you need it. In the back room, under the glow of the Coors sign, Randall looked at Spider. Spider had a vaguely familiar look about him. Maybe it was that he reminded Randall of vermin. He had a long pointed nose that seemed to be missing whiskers, but no, it was something else. He looked like a dwarf in reverse, like somebody had transplanted a child's face onto an adult's body. Sure, it was wrinkled and fucked up, but somehow the features still looked childlike. He might have been cute as a kid, but now there was something grotesque about him, unnatural even. 
Spider drained a shot of wild turkey and washed, back, washed it back with a slug of beer. He looked over at Jeffrey. So what's the deal, he said. He said you had some business for me. You still got those connections in the porn industry. At the mention of his porn connection, Spider suddenly got antsy. He looked at Randall and said, what's Jeffrey been telling you? Randall shrugged. Just that you know some people, that's all. Be cool, Spider. Randall's good people. He's okay. I just don't like talking about that shit, Spider said, glaring at his empty bourbon glass. Another, Randall said, getting up before Spider had a chance to say yes. Before the meeting, Jeffrey had told Randall the whole story of Spider's career in porn. He'd heard that there'd been some kind of a stink on an S&M video he'd done a few years ago that had made him pretty much un unemployable within the mainstream porn industry. Something to do with the strangulation scene that went wrong. The way that Jeffries hold it, nobody had even realized the kid was dead until after Spider had ejaculated. And the Russian mafia had financed the films and they'd forced Spider to help dispose of the corpse. And the dead kid was illegal, underage, and vanished as if he'd never even existed. I mean, you've got to imagine the effect this had on him, Jeffrey had explained back in the hotel room. Spider supposedly doesn't dig guys anyway, and now he has to fuck this Russian kid while he's tightening a leather belt around his throat. And afterwards, Spider realizes the kid died, and now not only is he a faggot for money, now he's a necrophiliac, too. And it's all on tape. And the guy shooting the video hands Spider a handsaw and tells him to get to work while he goes by as a shovel and some lime. Let's just say the Spider didn't do movies for a while after that. When Randall returned with the drink, Spider's mood had changed again and Jeffrey and Spider were having a conversation that judging from the smiles on their faces could only be about drugs. Oh, you got some go fast, Spider said, shooting a gap-toothed grin at Randall. You mind if I, uh... Sure. Under the table, Randall passed the baggie to Spider. Be right back, boys, he said, walking towards the bathroom. Once he was out of sight, Jeffrey said, I don't know why the fuck we're dealing with this guy. He's a total fuck-up. Well, I can see he's a total fuck-up, but that's beside the point. He knows Dmitry Barakov, who was fucking big time in the porn industry. I heard of that motherfucker. He's a billionaire. You won't hear his name mentioned at those fucking adult movie conventions, but he bankrolls everything. Oh, man, I just don't think the Russian mafia is the direction we should be taking this. This is movie history, man. We need to get it into the hands of a proper collector. I agree, Randall hissed. But we don't got time for that. If we sell it to DeWald, we still have to pay out Stevie, and there's no time to find another freak like him. The Spider's porn connections match the offer. We'd take 100%. Spider might want a cut, but believe me, I can read people. This guy, he's a first-class moron. We could probably pay enough with some fucking meth, and he'd be happy. People are looking for us right now. You said it yourself. We need to cash this shit in and get the fuck out of L.A., right? Right, Jeffrey conceded. As soon as Spider returned, Randall took the baggie from him and snorted some more himself. He shivered under the bathroom, short-circuiting fluorescent light. The chemical stench of the speed made his lungs feel as though they'd been scrubbed out with Ajax. He flushed the toilet and walked back out to the bar. His brain was frantically spinning off in many different directions. He slid back into his seat, his eyes burning holes through the ozone. As, it sat, as he sat down, it came to him in a moment of idiot genius. He realized why Spider's face was so familiar. I told you what that motherfucker did to me, Spider was saying. You know they sold that fucking clip anyway? Out there somewhere, some corpse fucker's using it for jerk-off material. Oh, that's rough. But, you know, I could make the call. It'd have to come through me. But, you know, I got a relationship with those guys. So if I'm going to put my good name out there, there better be something in it for me. So what is it? What's this big deal you're trying to unload? It is porn, right? Jeffrey nodded his head. Spider dropped his voice down. Specialist stuff, huh? What is it? Kids? Animals? It's okay, I'm broad-minded. You won't offend me. Little wonder, Randall finally blurted when he could hold his tongue no longer. You were in Little Wonder. You were Jimmy, the neighbor's kid. At the mention of these words, Spider's face collapsed in upon itself. He scowled and emptied his glass with a flourish. 
What the fuck's a little wonder? Jeffrey asked no one in particular. Yeah, that was me, so fucking what, Spider Spat. Little Wonder, it was like this great TV show back when I was a kid. It was like totally ahead of its time. Too fucking dark for network TV. Didn't that scientist, uh, Mr. Fester, didn't he like murder his son during the opening credits? It wasn't murder, it was an accident in the lab. Right, 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 he kills his son in some kind of terrible accident. Now remember, this is a sitcom aimed at the same audience as Punky Brewster. So he kills his kid and then attempts to hide the crime by building a replacement, a robot kid, the little wonder. Jeffrey looked at Spider through slit eyes. You played a robot on a TV show? No, Spider sneered as if the very idea were preposterous. Then he quietly added, I played the kid who lived next door to the robot. The one that knew that the kid was a phony. I was always trying to catch out Mr. Fester. Shit, Randall said, shaking his head in wonder. How long did you guys last? A season or two at the most, right? Seven episodes. Jesus, seven episodes. It was like a fucking Shakespearean drama, I'm telling you. Randall slipped the baggie of math to Jeffrey. It was ahead of its time. People weren't ready for that shit. Today on HBO, maybe you could get away with weird, dark shit like that. But back then on the networks... Oh, they killed us, Spider said matter-of-factly. Killed us. I never worked again. Landon Bruce, the guy who played Mr. Fester, well, he did a few episodes of The Love Boat, and then he burns his face up in an accident on the set of some Italian movie about cannibals after that. Spider shrugged. What about the kid? What happened to Little Wonder? AIDS. Heard the chick he married was a junkie. You know how that goes. They sat and considered this for a moment. Over by the bar, the guy with the broken nose was rubbing the thigh of the barfly and whispering hot filth into her ear. She was giggling, and for a moment she looked like a 14-year-old girl. Jeffrey said, I'm going to powder my nose and split for the bathroom. When they were alone, Randall said, You should write a book, man. One of those fucking tell-alls. Fuck off, laughed Spider. Get me a drink. I'm serious, man. Think of all the kids who were our age and they were scarred for life by that show. They don't want to hear stories like mine, Spider growled. They want shit that's going to make them feel warm and gooey inside. Shit that won't make them think too hard. Do you want me to say how I found God or love or golf or fucking L. Ron Hubbard or some shit? You know something, man? I'm already where I want to be. I got $60 in my pocket and I'm going to pick up an eight ball of meth when we're done here. I wouldn't switch places with Leonardo to fucking Caprio right now. I got everything I need now. He looked around the bar once more and grabbed Randall's shoulder with a pleading, shaking hand. His voice dropped to a hoarse whisper. They don't want that. They want that candy-coated, low-fat, mocha-latte garbage they're used to. They like their junkies nice and presentable. They like them sorry. They like them boo-hooing and asking for forgiveness. Well, fuck that. Fuck writing books. Are you going to buy me a fucking drink? Jeffrey sailed across the dirty floor like he was ice skating. He knocked at the table and said, Well, ladies, what did I miss? Thank you. Actually, um, the tape. This is an interesting. I, you know, I got, I got a kid. I got a six-year-old kid. You know, and uh, you know, the the worst thing about having a kid is you have to hang out with other parents. That's like, that's like hell on earth. You know, and it's like, you know. So, um, but there's this one parent that I actually like, and he's got he's got a, a girl the same age, and he, I like him because all we do is our, our kids run off together at the park, and then we start talking about like the Manson murders or B movies or, so, or just like some weird shit, you know, or you know bands that nobody else remembers. And he actually told me he was the one that turned me on to this whole thing that supposedly. After the Manson murders, when the cops came into the Tate house, they confiscated all these tapes. And the urban legend goes that they found this tape with, with Sharon and Yul Brynner and Mama Cass on it. And 
they would actually organize private screenings in cut bars of this of this tape, and it was it had been circulating, you know, underground. Now at first this seemed really unbelievable to me, but also I lived in LA when the Rampart scandal was happening, so actually nothing was too unbelievable when it came to the LAPD. So I thought that maybe there was a germ of truth in this, and. Um, I'd already had this idea to do to do a, a story about two junkies on a get rich scheme and the, the joke would be that they were always too fucked up on drugs to get rich even though they had all of the tools to get rich so uh, I combined the two and that's that's where Six City came from. But yeah, suppose, supposedly it's out there. The, tr the truth is out there somewhere, I don't know. Um, yes? Yeah, I actually happened to, to turn to that chapter when I came to see read the book. Oh, yeah. Describing how the white bread was yeah, yeah, Leonard Lake, yeah. Serial killers who videotaped their, their, their murders. And I've heard rumors of that as well, that the officers have done that. I'm from New York, and it's the paramedics who used to take pictures, uh, well, a paramedic, who would take Polaroids, uh -huh. car accident scenes, and he had a whole portfolio of Polaroids back in the early 80s, like the car accident scenes, and they get immune to it, and they're kind of like, you know, so the idea, I, I just was wondering, though, Mama Cass, Suppose, yeah. <laughs> Comic relief. <laughs> you know, she was out there supposedly, she, you know, yeah, yeah, Mama, you know. Mama Cass needed some loving too, you know, and she was, you know, she was hanging out, you know, I, you know it's, it's funny because when I started writing this, it was, this was before the whole, like, Roman Polanski thing blew up again, you know, and I remember when I was writing, I was thinking, like, oh, who's going to believe this, you know, and then, uh, then, of course, it was like, you know, Roman Polanski was, you know, sodomizing 13-year-olds at his house, and, you know, I said, part of me thinks, well, it was the 60s, you know, that's what everybody said, it was the 60s, you know, it was anything goes in the 60s, supposedly, you know, but, um, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. But you know, I, there was there was actually a cop bar in uh, on East Sunset. We used to go to. I forget the. Apparently, it's like a very hip bar now. I can't remember the name of this place. Is Steve Adams here? The shortstop. And we used to go there, we'd be up doing meth all night, and at 6 in the morning, that was the only place, there was a bar that opened at 6 in the morning, you could go play pool, and we used to go there, and, and all the cops would come off of shift at 6, and we would be like, like literally like snorting meth off of the bar with like the LAPD around us, and they'd be like, you know, Willie Nelson on the jukebox, and all of this kind of shit, and I could never understand why we never got busted, and I realized they're all off duty, they don't give a shit, you know. But apparently it's a very hip bar now, I don't think cops go there anymore. More though, but um, and, uh, uh, I also appreciate detail. You talk about flushing the toilet before he leaves the bathroom, you know, there's really no reason to do that, but it's something that people tend to do. They'll go into a stall, and before they leave, they'll make sure to flush the toilet and then they really go. Exactly right, yeah, it's just it's a cover, you know, people don't have any reason to do it. I always try and do it. I don't know. I'm a bit of a stickler for hygiene, you know. But <laughs> thank you. Oh, no, thank you. Anybody else got a question? Oh, actually, yeah, yeah. This is a real mustache. I grew this mustache. I started growing. This is, I know now people are going to think the mustache is a fake. This was a real mustache, and I started growing it in November because every boy needs a hobby. Um, and, I, you know, it, it was, um, I, I, I discovered that I had a, a face that was a natural for, for mustaches and uh, you know what happened was the story of why I got the mustaches one night we were we were at home and I was watching have you ever seen that movie Star 80 with Eric Roberts okay so I was watching that and I, I was well, I was admiring Eric Roberts's pencil mustache in Star 80 and I, I had a few cocktails and I was like you know something it's time uh, also two days ago some kids in the neighborhood had stopped me and yelled Borat at me and I was like, maybe I got to change up the mustache style here, you know. So I was like, let me go for a pencil mustache. And I started like cutting away at it and my hand kind of slipped. And, uh, and then I realized it was too short on one side. And the only thing I could really do was to go for a, tooth, a toothbrush mustache or the more commonly known as the Hitler mustache. And, uh, you know, I put my wife through a lot of shit in our relationship. But walking around married to somebody with a Hitler mustache was like, it was a bridge too far even for me. So I just decided to shave it off all 
altogether. My daughter was very pleased. But yeah, this is this is a real mustache, and it, it may come out to play again if I if I get bored enough to start growing my facial hair. But um, yeah, I was I was I was getting sick of picking things out of it, you know. But um, if you've ever had a, a, a really thick mustache and how irritating it can be, you know, they kind of take over your whole face, you know. But um, yeah. Have at it. Anything, anything. Sex life, anything. It's okay. Well, this would be for both of you. You both do poetry and fiction. And it just depends on what mood you are in, or like, gotta write a poem, or gotta write some poetry. Is it how Dan, you know. uh, Tony will probably tell you this: that uh, characters in a novel live in your head sometimes for a year or two years, and you get pretty get pretty sick of them after a while because you're always thinking ahead. You're, you're writing and thinking ahead. And so what happens when early in, in my novel writing, when I'd finish writing a novel, uh, my first novel took me, I think, two and a half years. And so I wrote a book of poems. No, I wrote a play. Uh, because plays are much easier. Dialogue for me is much easier. Then I wrote another novel, and then I wrote a book of poems because you need to change up. My, uh, my discipline is that I write six days a week, two hours a day. And so, and I've continued that for about 20 years. So if I'm not writing a novel, I need something to change up. I need to change a pace. So it becomes either, uh, either a book of poems or, um, or a play. Yeah, some, some, something similar. I'm always one of those people. I'm scared if I stop writing, like, you know, I'm going to forget how to do it, you know. So uh, when I get blocked on something, I'll switch it around. I've not written a poem in a long time, though. You know, I, I, I wrote this uh, book of poetry called Songs from the Shooting Gallery. And when that was done, poetry kind of tailed off. And then I, I ended up writing, like, three novels in a row in, in a burst of activity. So, um, so yeah, I haven't, I haven't written a poem in a while. It's just, you know, I've got, you got to go with, uh, you got to go with the path of least resistance, you know, and, and uh, certain things will seem incredibly difficult, like the short story will seem impossible one day and you've got you to gotta switch it off. But I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with writing longer things right now, but um, I'll come back. Actually, I've got a question for myself. Um, why, why is there no alcohol at the reading? Okay, you probably read that there was going to be cis this stuff called Cisco wine at the reading, which Dan, I'm sure, is familiar with. Cisco, Cisco wine is uh, is a, a, a nasty wine, that the, a bum wine basically, a wine marketed specifically at homeless people. And uh, so I tried to get Cisco to sponsor my reading because I thought it would be really funny if everywhere I showed up they'd send a, a crate of Cisco wine because I thought it would be interesting, maybe there'd be fights, nudity, pools of urine. And uh, we actually had it all set up, which is why I actually apologize why I've not come with any Cisco because we had this all set up and then like about a week before the tour I got an email from the, bar, the head of the Cisco wine company going, we cannot be associated with this, we promote responsible drinking of Cisco. Now, this this is a wine that comes in like a little two dollar bottle and if you drink it you will probably end up having sex with some half human creature or wake, waking up you know in a, a by the hour motel room with like your own watery shit covering half of your body it's one of the, it's one of those drinks you know and, and you have to add that Cisco wine has never been anywhere near a grape <laughs> oh yeah, but it comes in flavors, and one of the flavors is red. They don't even—it's not even like oh, it's strawberry. It's just red. What flavor is red? It's red. They have red and orange. So anyway, so I was like, well, fuck Cisco, man. We're gonna we're gonna buy Cisco wine. So and this is how I lived in Hollywood ten years ago, and this is how much Hollywood has changed. We checked into the hotel today. I go down to the local liquor store, and I'm like, you know, I was getting a, a tall boy and some water and some chips and all that, and I'm like, so where's the Cisco? And the guy looked at me. He was handing me my change. He's like, Cisco, we don't sell Cisco anymore. He's like, I was, we got sick of the fucking bums hanging out here. And he's like, Hollywood Boulevard is for the tourists now, not for the bums. And he slammed my change. And he's like, thank you. Now, now you go. So I, that's, why, that's why I came not bearing Cisco. And that's, that's why everybody's fully clothed and uh, your, your livers are probably doing okay and you're probably going to remember this tomorrow which is uh, for which I profusely apologize <laughs> so um, yes uh, this is sort of has to do with that and with having a child 
there's a kind of a nostalgia almost to just kind of looking back at the way Hollywood, I mean, they kind of rough. It's almost like Times Square in New York, which isn't Times Square anymore. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm just wondering, as a writer who kind of draws a lot of your inspiration, both of you, I guess, um, how has having a kid or a family or respectability kind of changed how you go about what you do and what you intend to write in the future? Um, well, I know f for me, if I'll take it first. I mean, having a kid, I mean, that's, I mean, I wouldn't have written if I didn't have a kid because I'd probably still be, um, you know, like I think that that was kind of a great anchoring force in my life where I, you know, I, I was able to concentrate on writing and start concentrating on getting high every day, you know. So um, so that was that was a big, this, I wrote the first novel, you know, and I've, I've, so I feel like I've told this story a lot, but maybe I've told it to different people, I can't remember. But, um, you know, I wrote the first novel, I was, de I was in London, I was detoxing off of methadone at the time and I needed something to keep me sane and I remember I had this little computer that you had this like t 10 year old Mac that barely worked and I had a little trash can by the computer to vomit into and it was just, it, I was very sick and just doing something to keep myself sane writing down recollections of my, my dope days in LA and that's, that's where the first book came from and I, um, you know you know, my daughter, she knows I write, and she's always uh, curious to read it. And I just tell her, like, oh, you'd be very bored by this. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, like, wouldn't like it right now. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get it right now. You know, she's still, uh, she just read her first Judy Bloom book, you know. So she's, she's working on that. I don't want to blow her mind too early. But, you know, when she's old enough, I'd be like, you know, uh, I'd be like, go for it. Because, I, you know, it's, uh, I'm hoping she didn't inherit all of my DNA. Maybe just some, just the good parts, none of the bad stuff, you know. But I would, I would hope that if you'd, uh, read some of the stuff that I got up to it wouldn't seem so exciting to you then you know but uh, it's funny because I grew up in a household where nobody admitted to knowing nothing about drugs you know and it was uh, you know it wasn't until after I became a junkie and it all came out that then my father like belatedly admitted that like oh well actually you know it did run in our family you know I mean your, your uncle Billy was an alcoholic and you know your uncle John he actually died in prison he was forging morphine prescriptions and uh, you know I, but nobody told me this beforehand you know so I always felt like I, I dropped in from like plan from planet fucking junkie in, into this family that had never known about drugs you know so um, so I think I'm, I'm quite. I'd be quite open about it, you know. When she's when she's old enough, I'll uh, I'll spill the beans, you know. Dan, <laughs> uh, I wrote my first novel. Uh, I'm sober a long time now, uh, and uh, when I wrote my first novel, I was oh, I think. Um, three or four years sober, and I was suicidal for a long time, and uh, not having my medication anymore was a rough deal. And uh, so I began to write, uh, much like Tony, I began to write because uh, I had the suicide attempt and I was afraid I was going to do it again. And, uh, and what I was doing, uh, and that, my first novel is called Chump Change, and it's a pretty crazy book. Uh, because I was pretty crazy. But it was my therapy uh, just to survive my personality. Uh, and what happened was I found that, you know, in, um, you know, having recovered from alcoholism, uh, I hadn't recovered from thinking. And my problem was, uh, <laughs> My problem was not the thoughts that come and go, but the thoughts that come and stay. And uh, so there was some dark, very dark time for me. And when I was writing and thinking about the characters, I wasn't angry and I wasn't upset as much. And so it was, uh, and then I wrote my, uh, my first novel on, uh, my father was a writer too, and I wrote my first novel on his typewriter and the same typewriter paper that he had typed his last one. And I wrote it in his house uh, because, because my mother was supporting me at the time. And so my relationship, it's very interesting because um, I'm married and I have a, uh, uh, my son's gonna be six next week and none of my in-laws will discuss my work. <laughs> will we'll acknowledge that I am a writer. And uh, I have a brother and sister. My, my sister has actually read a couple of my books, but my family um, just doesn't get it. And uh, 
doesn't get the, they're not drunks. I've got a dead brother who drank himself to death, but the disease didn't hit my younger brother and sister. So I have alcoholism five generations and, uh, and, and drug problems. So with my son, um, a couple of weeks ago, we were in, a, in Barnes and Noble in, uh, forgive me for saying, using that, uh, and, uh, and they've got four of my novels there and their fiction shelf. And my son reached out and said, that's Papa's novel, Papa's book. I said, yeah, that's Papa's book. And I said, someday you'll read it. And if he wants to, good. And if he reads it and he's like the rest of my family who doesn't talk to me, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. What's the, uh, the story with the necrophiliac article? Is that, um... Oh, uh, this, 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 yeah, this was, um, I wrote, I was uh, doing freelance stuff. And uh, it's, it's funny because this article's never been published, but the article comes up because people hear rumors about this article. I decided to do an article on, on necrophiliacs. And uh, so I put an ad up on Craigslist saying that I was a necrophiliac and I wanted to meet other necrophiliacs to talk. And I was, uh, and suddenly I found myself bombarded by necrophiliacs who wanted, who wanted to talk to me. And, uh, you know, everybody from like a 70-year-old guy who was like down in the South, who was a mortician, who was like, you know, you know, I, a lot of people just basically wanted to write long, rambling, erotic emails about necrophilia to me, and some of them were fantastically interesting. Like this guy who, you know, oh, she was beautiful, and they, you know, they, they even she wasn't too messed up by the car crash, and I couldn't help myself. And and then one guy who was like, you know, let's meet, you know, and I was like, really, is like, you know, and I was, I was, I was doing this article for a magazine in England called Bizarre Magazine, where they they tend to do stuff about necrophilia or guys who love women over 750 pounds or people that like to attach electrodes to their nipples or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, like, you know, various kinks. And um, I was like, man, I don't want to end up in this guy's freezer for an article I'm getting paid 25 pounds for. So, so I didn't meet with him. But I, I did write the piece anyway, and I called the piece Return of the Loving Dead. And, uh, and it actually didn't get, they didn't publish it in the end. Uh, <laughs> but I sent it out to people, and every so often somebody asked me about this piece. I think it got circulated. And uh, write to me at the website, tonyoneal.net, and I'll be happy to send it to you if you're in any way curious about the inner workings of the necrophile community online they're out there and uh, and I have I have some of their email addresses and uh, I could even put you in touch if you really wanted any more questions okay we can uh, sign some books but uh, first let's give a big hand to both Dan been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Ashling and Arlo. You can check them out at MySpace or Facebook or at the iTunes Music Store. Thank you for stopping by and we hope to see you soon.